I would look into bit areas where people aren't looking today, but in two years, it's going to be super obvious. Like, oh yeah, every like half of the businesses returned to offices and they needed these tools. I don't know what that is. I am totally brainstorming, but just thinking what what sort of trends are small today that might be really big in three years from now. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today's episode, I get to talk to Andrew Gazdecki. He's the CEO of MicroAcquire. It's a marketplace for buying and selling companies. I've been following his story for a while now, so it was fun to get into the details. We talk about the buy versus build movement and why instead of starting a startup, you should actually buy one instead. We get into the types of companies that people are really liking on his platform. And if you're getting started in microacquisition, what you should think about before you buy a company. He then talks about how he was able to build this company to half a million bucks as just a one-person company. And then he talks about the story of selling two companies and then his own framework for how he comes up with startup ideas. And then at the end, he talks about the power of journaling and how that's really helped him be a clear thinker. I really hope you like this episode and we'll get to it. Andrew, would you introduce yourself? Can you pronounce my last name? Andrew Gazdecki. Is, is that close? Uh, you got it right. Yeah. I'm Andrew Gazdecki, born in Detroit. I moved to San Clemente when I was three. Do you want my whole life story or just like a small intro? Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Went to CSU Chico State. I started a business in college, started several businesses, kind of been an entrepreneur my whole life. I've started everything from an eBay store to a SaaS company to a job board, but I started a, a SaaS company in college. Ran that for about eight years. It was acquired in 2018 by a private equity firm. Started a crypto trading company after that. That was acquired by BNK to the Future, which is kind of like WeFunder, but for crypto projects, WeFunder or Republic, so like crowd equity funding. And then I guess now I'm a founder of MicroQuire. So that's like 12 years of work in two minutes. I mean, less than two minutes. I think it was 60 seconds. No, that's awesome. I was actually listening to some other interviews you did about, especially that first acquisition that I, I'm really excited to get into. The fact that you've gone through two is, is pretty cool. I, I definitely want to start with how I heard about you. Like I have a, a growth marketing agency called Growth Hit. We're very interested in acquiring businesses. And there's there's some options out there, but MicroAcquire, your company came onto the scene and I think has done things in such an original and different way. So before we even get into that, will you just like give the quick spiel on like what is microacquire microacquire in like one to two sentences? Yeah, five words. It's a startup acquisition marketplace. Actually, that's three words. Sorry, but to elaborate on that a little bit more, it's a marketplace where people can sell startups, generally SaaS startups, but also lots of e-commerce newsletters. One time there was, I always like to tell this story, there was an Instagram account full of dog pictures with 2 million followers. It sold within 24 hours. So really it's a marketplace full of tech companies, small tech companies. The buyers range from very large private equity firms with billions of dollars under management, public CEOs, people that I <laughs> like admire. I would have their baseball card if they had one. And then uh, a lot of entrepreneurs just looking to buy a company versus building one and starting from scratch. 
And that could be someone who is currently employed and they're looking to acquire a company and just run that one full time. It could be an entrepreneur that maybe had an exit previously and they're looking to you know, apply some of the knowledge that they gained through that experience and, again, not have to start from zero. And they can kind of jump to a year or two in the business where they can start focusing on scaling for starting it. So, yeah, I mean, long-winded answer, but it's a, it's a startup acquisition marketplace and having a blast running it. Yeah, I think what's a really impressive is, well, first, actually, my quick question, what multiple did the dog Instagram account go go for? Can you even speak to that or like a range? I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I have no idea. So in MicroQuire, I, <laughs> I don't have full visibility into what deals sell for. And I'm building in certain things now that'll help with that. So I can give like better marketplace data-driven valuations and stuff like that. But I completely respect buyers and sellers' privacy. So it sold and it was taken down from the marketplace. And I emailed the seller and he said, hey, found a buyer. And I said, okay. Yeah. So I also don't pry to, I don't ask, what do you sell it for or anything like that? But I assume he was happy. Yeah. Well, I think that's what makes the platform special. But I would say I'd be very interested in that data just as someone that's looking to acquire a company. But taking a step back, I, I think you're also jumping on this movement that I think is really getting a lot of kind of momentum right now, this idea of like buy versus build. You've got the book buy versus build. Because I don't know, anyone that's actually started a company, you just know how hard it is to from idea to getting traction, getting posts product market fit, if that even happens, it's really hard. It's exhausting. I mean, sometimes you have these breakout success stories where they think it's easy, it just happens overnight. And I'd, I'd love to be a part of more of those. But one thing that's nice with buying a company that is either has some sort of foundation with a product that's built, you have some sort of traction, recurring revenue, which you, you've also leaned really heavy into software as a service, SaaS, which I think is something people want more and more of because there's a lot of other sites out there you could maybe get like a Amazon like fulfilled by Amazon type of company e-commerce company but you've really kind of leaned into more of the tech-based companies but like with this movement kind of like a buy versus build becoming more mainstream what are you seeing on microquire as far as the types of companies or opportunities that get the most demand yeah, that's a really good question. Sometimes it surprises me. Like again, going back to the Instagram account full of dog pictures, that one sold within a day. A lot of the, the businesses that sell really quickly are generally SaaS businesses and they're just good products that are just lacking sales and marketing. That's usually the, the most common theme. Some are larger businesses. Some are very established and that would be great for, let's say, a micro PE firm or even a strategic buyer. But I'll give you an example of a company that sold recently, which was a perfect fit. It was a company that went through Y Combinator. They built a product and grew it to about 200000 in revenue, something like that. They ended up selling it for, let's call it 400000 It was profitable, but it wasn't a business that was going to become a unicorn. It wasn't going to go on to raise a bunch of venture capital or anything like that. But it's a great business. And so on one hand, you have this set of founders that are looking to build a really, really big business. And then you have people looking to, they'd be thrilled running a business that generates a million a year and 300,000 a year in profit or something like that. 
So that business sold within two weeks. It was a great product, but it was in a saturated market, lots of competitors, but it had carved a niche and it had a lot of happy customers. But you could tell that the the TAM that it was able to address was a little limited unless they expanded the product. So I'd say those are probably the best companies on microquires when you have a group of talented builders, people that love to go to, to zero to one. So all the stuff that you said that was really hard, like thinking of the idea, building the product, a lot of entrepreneurs are great at that. And then when it comes to going from one to two and actually figuring out the marketing strategy and the sales strategy, they kind of get either distracted or they realize the market opportunity isn't that big. There's a number of different reasons, but they typically will move on to another product or project. And that's a great project to sell to someone who happily breathe in some fresh energy, think of marketing strategy, sales strategy, and be perfectly okay with it not being like a 10, 20, 50 million year company, but a 1 million year company or something like that. So those are probably the best. And those are also my favorite because when those acquisitions happen, uh, both sides are just really happy because on one hand, you have a group of founders that built something and sometimes like before MicroQuire, they would just shut it down. They just say, hey, we don't have time for, we're focusing on something new. And so they get to sell that, use those funds to go towards whatever new project they're working on. And they sell it to someone who's just extremely happy with this really well-built product. And they can grow that into a small business for them to personally run. So both buyer and seller are, are super happy in those situations because they both to get to go after their goals. One is going for the billion dollar outcome. One's going for, I just want to run a, a small tech business making a few hundred thousand profit a year. And MicroQuire enables that. So I, I think that's that's probably the most common theme, but it's a broad question. I, I see e-commerce companies selling really quickly, direct to consumer. Even some crypto companies, newsletters, mobile apps. I, I, I see a lot of startups, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you did an annual report on MicroAcquire with just what you're seeing would, would be fascinating. But to call it that point, so that's really interesting because if someone's venture-backed, and I think most people know this, but you're venture-backed, you're raising a lot of money, the goals are very high for that venture capitalist to make 10x their investment, right? And so those are insane goals. So if you're like doubling, you go 2x, that's still not hitting the goals, but that's an amazing business for somebody else. So if you can go from being venture back to someone who's more of like the bootstrap mindset, just trying to make something profitable and make some cash flow, that could be amazing. So I, I love that you've kind of created this marketplace where you can connect the two. I'd like to kind of almost dumb it down. So let's say you're someone that's interested in buying a business. Could you walk me through what advice you should give? For example, our company, we want to buy a business. How should we think about founder company fit, right? So we're a, a growth marketing agency. Our ideal situation would be a company that has real traction that has not done those things that we do from a growth marketing perspective. But if they're already doing ads and they have a great funnel, I don't know how much value I could add. And then the second thing I'd love to hit on is what is you find the right fit of a company? How should you think about pricing? If it's do you need to pay all cash? Is it should I be considering seller side financing? So sorry, I just peppered you with twenty questions. As you can see, it's very selfish. But would just love for you to kind of dumb it down for people as they're going through this thought process. Yeah, I mean, everyone kind of has their own view of 
know, the best way to, to buy business. I mean, there's there's certain things that you just have to do. Like you have to go through kind of the, the legal steps, issuing an LOI, putting together an asset purchase agreement, figure out how funds are going to be transferred. What is the structure of the payment? For example, are you going to do half of the, the final purchase price up front and the other half after 90 days? Is there a transition period with the founding team? Those are all some things to, to think about. Those are all formalities. But to get specific to your question in terms of how I would go looking about something that would be a good fit for you to purchase is really looking at the product. I like doing that personally. I like going through the product in depth. And I've bought in a few applications and mostly just made them free for other people. But I looked at user reviews. I spend a long time getting to know the founder. Why are they looking to sell just on a personal level? Because you're not just buying a house. You're buying something that someone has you know, built and they know a lot about it. And so you want to keep a, a good relationship with them. There's a great quote by Warren Buffett. He says, you can't do a good deal with a, a bad person. So just making sure you're on the same wavelength in terms of expectations and what are the opportunities. That's probably the first place I would look. And then in terms of how to structure the deal, that again comes down to your relationship with the seller. And I see a lot of buyers make the mistake of just thinking, let's just throw an LOI out immediately. And that's how we win the confidence of you know the seller. But really understanding what the seller is trying to accomplish. Like the example I gave you previously, where these two founders had this product that they had built, but they are they were already working on something else. So they were probably looking to find someone who would take care of it, move quickly. And so when you understand what's motivating the seller to to sell the business, that can really be used to your advantage. So maybe it is all cash. Maybe they're willing to work with you with a payment structure that makes sense because they want to work with you. Because when you sell a business, it's not just very rarely is it like, eBay, buy it now, okay, it's yours. You'll always have some questions maybe a week after the transaction is closed. And so having a good working relationship during that transition period is key. So I would recommend finding a product that you see potential in and that you can spot obvious growth levers that you can pull on. Sometimes it's messaging. Sometimes it's pricing. Sometimes they're just on page two of Google for a really high value key term. There could be a number of different growth levers to pull on. If you can you know, locate those, those could be a good business to buy. And then you look at customer reviews. What are people saying about it? And then getting to know the founder, like what is an ideal outcome for them? And then sometimes every founder would prefer all cash. But if that all cash offer comes with other unfavorable terms, maybe that gives you an opportunity to come in with something that is aligns both of you better. But to kind of just, if I had to like give you a straight answer, I'd say product you love, product that you can see other customers loving, has clear growth opportunities that you specialize in. So you understand them and you can ideally grow the business. Because when you look at businesses on the smaller end, you typically don't want to just buy them and hold them and let them sit. Like this isn't real estate where you just let the house sit there and, and it appreciates. That's not how SaaS works at all. So typically with businesses under a million in revenue, you always want to have a plan in place to, to grow the business, at least in my view. So that's that's key. And then, yeah, having a good relationship with the, the seller and understanding what their ideal outcome looks like. And then just being a good person, like don't be a headache to work with. And I think you can find some pretty good deals.
Yeah, that's really good advice. I actually just took notes on what you said. I think one really smart thing you called out is obviously a product you like, but how can you measure there's traction or product market fit? You talked about like looking at reviews, if there's a way to talk to existing customers. If it's a high repeat purchase product, what is the retention or like the repeat purchase rate, whatever that would be? And then the other call out is, I, I totally agree. Like it would be amazing you just buy something, hold it and watch the cash pile up. But with companies at this earlier stage, I, I, I do think you need to be thinking about sustainability and, and growth and how you scale it. On your blog, you talk about some SaaS companies. Sometimes the biggest lever you can pull is just a price change, right? If you think it's being undervalued, is that something that you see a lot of people doing or are people a little hesitant to to pull the trigger on that? It depends. If churn is really low and you see... So when you raise pricing, some customers are always going to inevitably cancel. So you want to make sure that you're looking at the numbers correctly in terms of how many customers churn monthly, yearly? If it's really low, that's a great opportunity to potentially raise pricing. Because when you raise pricing, you'll have some of your lower value customers drop off. Then you have fewer customers essentially paying you either the same amount or the or more than the amount in, in aggregate. So you have less customers to support, but they're paying you a higher amount. And the reason pricing is usually one of the first levers to look at is pricing is one of those powerful growth strategies or growth levers for a SaaS business. And it's also one of those things as a founder, you just kind of make up your pricing. You just one day say, I don't know, 20 bucks a month. There's no science behind it. There's no data behind it. Not Some founders definitely get really scientific and A-B tester pricing, but more often than not, it's just some pricing plan they made up two years ago. And then over the course of those two years, there's been some really nice product updates. There's you're coming into the business with some fresh energy. And so you can justify a price increase just based on that alone most of the time. But it's definitely, it's a process. There's a lot of communication involved with customers. I always recommend if you're going to do a price increase, test it on like a subset of customers. So you can gauge the reaction because you're going to get everything from no big deal. And then one person's going to be really upset and just being able to kind of feel out the customer base if you're not that familiar with them. It's much easier to raise pricing on a business that you've been running for four years because the customers, how they're going to react. Not all the time, but when you're coming into a fresh business and you don't know how price sensitive the customers are, it's good to just test that first. And then you can roll that out to the other 90, 80, 70% of customers or how many you initially tested with. But yeah, I mean, pricing is one of those things you can go from your average price is, let's call it. 20 bucks a month over the course of a year, that's like around $300, $250. You can double that and then you just doubled your you know, LTV of the customer in a day. So it's a really powerful and fast way to increase revenue of a business and also decrease operational costs because you have less customers that you have to support if you have customers that end up leaving because of the price increase. That's really smart. I mean, it sounds so simple. I'm just going to acquire an amazing SaaS company, raise the price, and we're good to go. I like your, your call out of testing it, though, before you go all in, just so you don't really tamper with something that could be quite damaging. Yeah. And, and one thing, I, I wrote a whole article on it on the MicroCore blog, if you want to check it out. It's definitely not, I don't recommend just buying something, double the price, and then <laughs> like, you want to communicate and you want to add value. You want to see if there's other things. Are there certain features people have been asking for? Are there, is there a higher level of support that this price increase? Like basically every customer is going to wonder, what's in it for me? 
like, is this extra revenue just going to go towards, like, is it going to go towards functionality, support? So getting customers excited about them having to pay more, I think is also key. So definitely do your homework before doing a price increase. For sure. Yeah. Yes. I totally agree with. So my, my last question on the kind of platform. So one thing that I found, I've been going through looking at companies, my partner and I both look at it. The problem is we're super busy, like managing clients. I feel like I'm slow. You send out a really good email with like the latest stuff. And then I'm, I'm too slow to get in contact with them. Here's, here's a half-baked idea for you that might be really bad, but I would probably pay a little bit more to have someone be like, okay, you're growth at, you're looking for this type of company, here's your deal size, we've got you in mind, and it's almost curated for me, or if there's like some sort of like first look at something. Again, it, it, this is probably a bad idea you shouldn't do, but selfishly, that's what I would want with the platform. I don't know if that's like on the roadmap. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely is. So, so MicroQuire arguably has the largest database of people interested in buying SaaS companies in the world. That might be a stretch, but I, I haven't heard of anyone else with a larger buyer pool. So the idea that we're going to be rolling out soon is basically getting your saved search criteria. So for example, you're looking for a SaaS company in the MarTech space with revenue over 100,000, less than a million with profit in between 200 that whatever the criteria would be and then whenever we take a startup live on microquire you get an instant alert we've been meaning to build that for a while but it's a little more complicated than we initially scoped but within probably two months we'll have that because it solves two problems it solves the problem that you just described but then also for founders as well as we can drive potentially hundreds if not thousands of people that fit that criteria and bring them the most qualified buyers as soon as they go live on microquare. So that, that 100% is on the way. Okay, perfect. I'll keep an eye out for it. Very excited. And it sounds like you might not be charging more for it. So even better. Oh, that's awesome, man. So I want to hit on just the growth of microquare in general, because I believe it's just you and you have some help with maybe some other freelancers, but it sounds like it's a pretty small team. And you're pretty public. And I'd like to hear your thought about this. There's this book, I think it's called Show Your Work by Aaron Klein. And you do such a good job of working in public. I think your last numbers, you're basically approaching half a million in annual recurring revenue is like this one person company. Talk to me about like the impact of showing your work and you're very transparent. So people feel like they're part of the journey with you. It, was that intentional to help get traction and get people excited and what you're building? I didn't start doing it with any sort of intention aside from just inspiring other entrepreneurs. I think it's really cool. I don't know. I'm like a one person team and I would be interested in hearing about something like that. But I think as an entrepreneur, when you find product market fit, and uh, it just, it's really exciting. It's just such, a, and I like to share that with people. And I I'm humbled that people like seeing that as well. And I, there's no strategy behind it. There's no thought behind it. I just think it's a fun way to show entrepreneurs like, yeah, you can build a company to six figures by yourself. It's hard. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's possible. And I guess my only goal is if that inspires a few people to, hey, I can start a company. I think it's worth it. But yeah, I do it mostly for fun. I definitely... 
I can't say there hasn't been any business benefits because it's also a great way to show people that this is a product that a lot of people are saying with their dollars that they enjoy. So I'm able to show instead of just saying, hey, MicroQuire is awesome. When you show like a revenue milestone, you're really saying like, this is my revenue milestone. And this is the vote of 2000 customers saying that this product is awesome. So I think some people kind of add that and it gives a little bit of credibility to your brand as well. Yeah, well, I, I think you're even underselling how how good you've been at that, at just being transparent. And the thing that I like too, it's it's very easy to see the stories of people that are like, hey, look, we raised all this money, we're hiring. And and that's great and all. I think venture-backed startups are, are a blast. But the fact that you have done this kind of bootstrapped path, and it's not about looking at how much money we've made. It's like, hey, look at all the happy customers. Look at people doing deals. And by the way, this is actually a profitable business. And I think that's helpful for people to see because a lot of times you just see the unicorns and those big stories in the press. But I love seeing these. There's this company, I think it's called like Tiny Giants of really successful, well-run small businesses. And for me, those are the ones that I get more excited about whenever I see those. And so I don't even have questions here, but I just want to call out some things I think you're doing really well. So you're extremely customer centric with knowing your personas, which I think is also nice by like you starting with SaaS. And another thing, like I'd like to hear the advice you'd give on your pricing structure, because you essentially have a free version and a paid version. And so for anybody out there that's doing something that's, whether it's like a subscription annual or monthly, and you also have a free tier and a paid tier, it's like, what do you hold back for paid and what do you give for free? And one thing you've done extremely well is people can essentially window shop for free on MicroAcquire. You can see the type of company, their numbers, but what you hold back is the actual URL for what that brand or company is and actually contacting the owner. And so we have this idea in growth marketing of like a magic moment. How quickly do you get someone to that magic moment to see what your product does? And I think for yours, it's seeing the details of a company you could buy. It's very almost aspirational, but then you're holding back actually contacting people. What was the thought that went into that? Was it just, you came up with it real quick, let's just test this? Or was there some other iteration before you got to that? That's a great question. I had a few buyers suggest it. Like, hey, you should, originally it was, you get early access and then now it's you don't get any access unless you're a premium customer. And the reason for that is we would still see people sign up and then basically request information on a lot of startups and they weren't serious about acquiring them. So that's originally how premium was rolled out. I heard some sellers complaining that they would get like a hundred plus requests and they'd have to kind of filter out who's serious and who's not serious. And I had a few buyers previously say, I would pay for early access because I'm serious about acquiring these businesses. So one day I just said, okay, MicroAcquire Premium, it's $2.90 a year. You get early access. And that was the start of it. I literally just kind of made it up one day. But it solved two user experience problems in the business really well. One with buyers that were missing good deals or their messages to sellers just weren't being seen because there's just too many of them. And then for sellers, they were receiving less messages, but with more qualified and serious buyers. So, and then I guess the third problem it solved was it gave me a little bit of seed funding to reinvest into the business. But to be candid, I just 
I didn't expect that to be the business model when I first launched the business. If you see the growth chart, it's kind of funny. So I announced it, I believe, early August, and I didn't have any of the functionality built out. So nothing. And then I think 20,000 in annual recurring revenue worth of customers subscribe. And I'll never forget this, but there was a CEO of a pretty well-known company I've always respected. And he called me out. He said, hey, Andrew, you don't have any of this premium functionality built out, do you? You don't have the ability to give me a premium badge or allow me to access these deals for everyone else. I was like, no, I'm so sorry. I'm like building it out now. And he's like, I love that. Like keep being scrappy, keep like doing how you're doing it. And so what my point is, is on the growth graph, you'll see like a little bump and then it goes flat for like three weeks while I built it. Like I just stopped talking about it. <laughs> and then and then when I was ready, like I started marketing it more. So I also like pre-sold it. I didn't build that functionality until I knew customers would actually pay for it. And then once it was ready and built out and I had the functionality, then it was kind of off to the races. But yeah, I mean, sometimes the best business models come from listening to your customers. And that's what I did. I, I keep in touch with a lot of buyers and I enjoy the conversations. And I'm sure you've seen in the forum that we have with other buyers that some of the best feedback comes from there. And I, I listen to customers because I always say I'm not good. I'm terrible at figuring out what people want, but I'm good at asking. So I just kind of try to listen to customers as much as possible. And that ended up being the business model. And that's working out so far. Yeah. Well, I think you're smart to, to listen and not just have some grand vision and go blindly through that. And the other thing I do want to call out is you do annual subscription, not monthly, which is such a smart move because, for example, like Masterclass, I pay for Masterclass, the annual subscription, and I'm actually fine just once a year I have to make the decision if I upgrade it or not. But if they were monthly, like each month you kind of, even though it auto bills, you see that in your account, you're like, wait, do I still use this? Do I still want it? And so I think the annual subscription, if companies are able to do that, like 100% go that route over monthly one it's more money up front and it's two less decisions they have to make so i don't know if there's thought that went into that but but well done on the annual subscription yeah and one thing i'll i'll mention about annual subscriptions too is it's a great way to fund your business because if you get 30,000 annual subscriptions for a month you can reinvest that quickly into the business and that's all i've been doing is just reinvesting back into the business to accelerate growth so and the other thing, like with marketing, like for us, we see like paid channels are more and more competitive and oversaturated. Everybody's looking for some new channel for acquisition. And you could say community as a channel is one that's like people are trying to do well, but all but a lot of them don't. And so you have a Facebook group. That's actually how we got this podcast, how I got you on the podcast. I was like, hey, I launched a podcast. Andrew, do you want to be on? And you responded within like a minute, like, sure, I'll do it. And I'm like, wow, that that is a customer-centric founder that actually listens, that I was able to lure you into this. So thank you for that. But but talk to me about the impact of community on the business. If someone's starting a company, what they should think about when they're building a community. Yeah, so well, to start, I'm not a community expert, so <laughs> I don't know if I have the best advice. So, I mean, I think the best things when building a business, they, they kind of just come together organically. There was a group of buyers that just were asking for a place to see deals as soon as they went live. And I looked at like maybe a Slack room or something like that, but ended up with a Facebook group just because of the simplicity. 
And it's allowed me, it's low management, but it's allowed people to share their stories when acquiring businesses. It's allowed people to ask questions like, how do I structure this deal? I'm looking at buying a company in Canada, but I'm in the USA, or I just built this product that I think other micro acquire buyers might benefit from. So it just allow, it just brings everybody together. And it's really cool to see everyone sharing knowledge and just helping everyone out. And I think that builds a lot of customer affinity to your brand. So you almost have fans like they appreciate you bringing them into this other group of like minded individuals. It doesn't matter what platform you use to do it. I chose Facebook because it's just so easy to manage and it's just me. But yeah, I think community is huge for companies moving forward because again, you're creating like thousands of potential fans that will talk about your business. And that's the holy grail of marketing is word of mouth. And you can't ask for it. You can't try and make it happen. You just have to build a company where you truly care about your customers. And it's not, you can't fake it. You can't say you do, and then you kind of don't. And I think that's kind of helped micro acquire grow where people tell these really compelling stories of I've either bought a company or I sold a company. And that really kind of makes people feel that this is a marketplace where you actually can buy companies. You can actually sell businesses. So I guess what I'm just trying to say is the benefits of a community are, there's too many to list really. So I, if I was to start any company today, I would definitely be looking at a community. Any tips as far as do you make an effort to get in there in the mornings and start a conversation or reply or have some pre-thought-out questions or content? Anything to, that you did to kickstart it to really get that conversation going? Because I feel like now you don't even need to get in there. There's some great conversations. In the early days, anything you did to kind of engineer the, the community conversation? Yeah. Again, I'm probably not the best person at I mean, initially, I and this all came from me just wanting to know everyone. So I would post things like introduce yourself. What are you working on? Where are you from? Just because I really wanted to know, not just like, uh, how do I get this going? How do I get people talking? And that's where I think kind of the, the genuine sort of care for like, I really wanted to know, like, who are these? Who, who's this group of people? They're awesome. So I think just having that perspective or that sort of frame of mind is helpful. But I mean, just those are some simple things off the top of my head. Because you're really like hosting a party where no one knows anybody. And it's your job to kind of have people get to know each other and encourage them to speak up initially. And then I think once you get that spark going, people are more comfortable posting and sharing. And then the community kind of takes its rules on its own of like what people share and what people talk about. It's been really amazing to see how much people share and how much people learn from the group and just from product feedback to comments on deals that are being published. It's pretty cool to see. And I think it's just going to keep growing, which is even more exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. And it helps you inform the product roadmap too. It's like, wow, people really like this or want this. That That's really helpful. No, that's awesome, man. And so one thing I want to hit on before launching MicroQuire, you've sold two companies and they're, they're both pretty like insane stories. I'd, I'd love if you could talk us through, I don't know if it's even the first one, how that came to be from turning this idea into a company that grew quite big and you ended up selling. I, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So that was business apps. That was my first, my first baby. I literally, that was, I had so much fun at that company. I always say I, I didn't build the biggest company, but 
I think we may have built the funnest company to work at. I, I loved um, every moment of that journey. But yeah, so Business House was a, a do-it-yourself app builder. So it was like no code uh, for mobile before code was a thing. And yeah, it was cool. And so we ended up building more mobile apps, to my knowledge, than any other company in the world. And our go-to-market strategy was we partnered meet mainly with like web design agencies. For example, imagine a web design company in your hometown. They make all the websites for all the local businesses. We would partner with them and white label our software so they can build native iOS and Android apps and progressive web apps for their customers. And we translated the product in 40, 50 different languages. And it was a crazy ride. I was like 23, 24, managing a bunch of people, not having any experience doing any of that. It was it was definitely a right place, right time business. I cannot say it was successful without a ton of luck because the iPhone just came out. Every business was trying to figure out how to develop an iPhone app. No one knew how to develop. All the good iPhone developers were working on like games and stuff like that. So we were fortunate enough to recruit some really talented engineers for that business. And uh, yeah, it grew to about $10 million in intercurring revenue. And then it was acquired by a private equity firm. 2018. So I started it when I was 21. I sold it when I was 29. And I think the three-year anniversary is coming up next month. So I'm looking forward to that because that was a life-changing moment for me. I It was just the culmination of a decade's worth of work. The second business, Allcoin, that was a business I started working on when I was in due diligence for business apps. So I knew the business was being acquired. I had negotiated a 90-day transition period. So I was essentially going to be out of the business. And so I started working on, basically it started as a simple crypto wallet, moved into a couple other things. Long story short with Allcoin, we, so we started with like a crypto wallet. We started with these things called Atomic Swaps. It was a very technical, technical project. And then we moved towards basically trying to speed up transaction times on the Ethereum blockchain. And we use a framework called Plasma for that. So it was a very, very technical project, built some IP that was of value. And the strategy from the beginning was to build IP that we could sell to a larger company. So it was kind of a build to sell company. And it was acquired within 13 months after starting it. It wasn't a big acquisition, but for years worth of work, it, it wasn't too bad. But I also think I was early on that business. With crypto as big as it is, I kind of wish maybe we kept you know, going on that one. But yeah, so we sold that one to BNK to the future. What's interesting with both of those is, I mean, you, you kind of humbly talk about luck, but like the timing with both of those and being kind of catching something as it's about to go up this curve, whether it's mobile apps back or yeah, mobile design, mobile apps, when that's when people are probably charging like 50K to design like a simple mobile app, you get into crypto. And even now with MicroAcquire, getting into the buy versus build with SaaS really at the right time. Like, I mean, again, I'm like a Monday morning quarterback trying to like connect the dots on these three things. Those are the things that I'm seeing. I, I don't know like how intentional that was with the timing of those. Is that just a reflection of what you're into at the time? And it just so happened to be these kind of innovative things as they're up and coming? No, that's a very great question. I so when I launched Allcoin, a lot of my friends were like, "What? Why are you? Why wouldn't you just go and do another like SaaS company?" And I said, "Internet, mobile, blockchain are the three biggest technological shifts that we're going to see in our lifetime." 
business apps, I timed it correctly. I think blockchain has a ways to go in terms of reaching mainstream adoption with just good user experience. Right now you need MetaMask, you need all these third-party tools. If you just if you think crypto is ready for mainstream, just try to get your parents to use anything on the Ethereum blockchain. <laughs> it's like building stuff in the 2000s, but there's tons of promise with crypto and blockchain. So I'm very bullish on that. I just think it's a few years away. But yeah, I think I like to think of things that are not obvious today that will become obvious over time. And arguably, that was microquire too. I thought acquisitions would become. Uh, a more common theme given that there's so many companies being built, but the path to liquidity or an exit for smaller businesses is generally under underserved, either by brokers or investment bankers or strategic buyers. So I saw an opportunity in the market to help like a pool of companies that arguably is maybe even bigger than all the technology companies that are funded by venture capitalists because you just don't hear about them. You don't hear about these businesses and they pop out of nowhere. Like a, today we listed a business that was doing a million revenue and it's a CRM for like orthodontists or something like that. Yeah. So the bets like I think there's more small business, small tech businesses than big tech businesses. And I didn't know because there's no database to search. There's no way to really find out for sure. And I could have been wrong, but that's definitely something I look at is. There's a really good TED talk, if you want to Google it, about the main reason why really big startups are created. And it has to do with timing, like the timing of Airbnb or like the timing of Uber. It's like the number one reason that startups are successful. So I think about market timing a lot in terms of how to spot something that's not obvious today, but will become obvious over time. And when that trend starts to become obvious, you're positioned well to kind of capture that. Okay, so... I'm going to find that TED Talk. I'll put it in the show notes and I'll watch it myself. It's a really good one. It's my favorite one. Really? Okay, that's saying something. There's so many of those out there. Maybe not my favorite, but it's the one I've seen. <laughs> we'll say top five. Top five. So since you're the the rainmaker of ideas, I mean, you're, you're, you're batting a thousand here. Like if you weren't doing micro acquire, what would be the other industry or category you'd want to jump into? And this can be very half baked, but just interested to see like, what else are you like kind of excited about right now? I would put a lot of thought into what the world is going to look like two years from now. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are building tools for remote teams for basically the world that we're in today, which is everyone's at home. Everyone needs tools to work like, but Things will go back to normal. How can we help accelerate that? I'd be looking at those types of opportunities. Like, how can I bring more small businesses online or something like that? Like, I would look into areas where people aren't looking today, but in two years, it's going to be super obvious. Like, oh, yeah, every like half of the businesses returned offices and they needed these tools. I don't know what that is. I am totally brainstorming, but just thinking what what sort of trends are small today that might be really big in three years from now? And I don't, I don't know what those are. If I, if I did, I might hop on them and build a company. <laughs> They're out there. They're definitely out there. Well, yeah. And it's also the thing that's nice with, with micro acquire, it allows you to get so many reps in of interesting startups that are popping up to help you form that vision on what that could look like. And it's almost like, I don't know what a framework would be, but if it's like, okay, what does the world look like in two years? And then what's like the second order effect or the next level impact of that? Like the obvious one is like, oh, we go from desktop to mobile. 
what does that mean when everything's on mobile? Okay, that means mobile apps, what types of mobile apps? And it's just like trying to go through that thought exercise because I think it's a lot of pressure to just be this rainmaker and think of an idea. But I like the framework you gave of like, what does the world look like in two years? And how does that impact things in a different way? I think that's pretty tactical. Yeah. And, and one little tidbit I'll give on that too is I think people underestimate just how big the internet is and how big it's getting. So you can find a small niche today and then just focus on that niche for three years and then it'll grow in proportion with the internet. So that you could find a small niche, look at a big company with a feature that's underserved and just narrow in and build that feature and be the best in the market. And it's got a small TAM today, but three years from now, as the internet grows, more and more people are going to have that singular pain point. You solve it better than anybody. So there's a lot of arbitrage opportunities like that, where larger companies just have something as a feature, and that could potentially be not a billion dollar company, but potentially several million dollar company. That, that's really good advice. My, my friend Rob Sobers, he's like runs marketing at Veronis. He talks about playing on easy mode and it's going B2B, not B2C. Don't try and beat the behemoth, but take one feature and do it significantly better, but for one persona. And that opportunity could be massive. I think that kind of aligns with what you're saying. Yeah. That's really good advice. Okay, so two last questions. I'll let you get on with your life. I, I saw you in another interview talk about the impact journaling has had on you. And I'd love to hear like what advice you'd give to people that are starting to get into journaling and like how you should even approach that. Yeah, I, I love journaling. Mostly per, for perspective. I think when you're starting a company, it's so easy to dwell on what's going wrong and not focus on what's going right. So the best example, and when I talk about journaling, I don't mean like, hey, hey, diary, it's like <laughs> April 27th, like I'm feeling great. It's just, I usually just do like 10 bullet points, like how are things going really quick, like a two minute write. So when I read back, I can get to that sort of like frame of mind, like, oh, I remember that. But what it does is you'll write down like a big business problem that you're having today. And then trust me, if you start doing this, you'll notice a pattern where what is a big problem today in three months, it won't, you'll forget about it. You'll be like, Oh, I have this other problem now. And then it starts to kind of like accustom you as you know, an entrepreneur to realize you're always going to have some big problem. You're always going to have something where it feels like the world is ending. And then you get to a point where you're like, well, I feel like this all the time. It's, it's just part of the job and it never is as big of a deal as you think it is. So I think just, doing that for perspective is great. And then what I also did is I took, I used to journal all the way through business apps. I, I thought it was just so weird. And I have an online journal. I use Penzu, penzu.com. And I ended up turning that into a book, like every month of like what was going on in the company. So that, that'll be available in probably like three months or so. And it's just like my candid sort of like, this is what I did and all the mistakes I made. It's definitely not a book on like, hey, here's how to build a great company. It's like, here's just what I did and it worked out. But yeah, being able to like reflect back and read those memories is, I personally really enjoy it. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. And not to get too tactical. So you, you type, you don't write, do you do it in the mornings or at night? No set time. Penzu will send like notifications like, Hey, two years ago you wrote this. And then that, that reminds me. So I don't have like a dedicated schedule. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. And it's a good way, I think, to have 
a more crisp line of thinking whenever you actually write stuff out. So it's not just all floating around in your head. Nice. Okay. Last question. What's the nicest thing anyone has ever done for you professionally? Wow. That's a I want to make sure I get this one right. The nicest thing, I, I'm going to go with kind of a, a cop-out question. I would say anyone who has chosen to work with me is the nicest thing they've done professionally because you can work anywhere. And I, I always view, I understand that when people chose to work at either business apps or Allcoin or help me with microquire, they could be doing a million other things. And the fact that they enjoy working on whatever I'm working on, I that means a lot to me. So I'm going to go with that. Just anyone who's kind of had enough to believe in what I'm doing and come along with me for whatever journey I'm on, I, I'd say that's probably the nicest thing. I wouldn't like totally understand that until you start a company and you're like doing it all alone and then you slowly build a team and like the right person can just have such a positive impact on your business that I, I, I totally get that sentiment. No, that, that, that's a good one. Well, cool. Andrew, this has been a blast. Where can people find more information about you or MicroAcquire? Yeah, Twitter, I'm pretty active. Agazdecky, you can add me on LinkedIn, Andreasdecky, or just go to uh, microacquire.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. This has been a blast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jim. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthIt.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.